Hello and welcome to the Environmental Heroes podcast. I'm Ryan Lungu and I'm here with Julie Bolton. Woohoo! And we're excited to bring you another episode. This one is with Dr. Kate Ringval. Yeah, so I was super pumped to invite Kate to come on board today. Um, I met her recently at a federal government textiles and waste roundtable. And I was sitting one seat away from her and people were introducing themselves before the roundtable began. So we said a few things to each other about our backgrounds and chatting about the links and what we do. And it turns out that Kate is one of these amazingly, obviously intelligent people and has been able to, to me, seamlessly move from working in academia, working in government, working in business. She's she's covered it all. She's gone from um, different groups to different groups to focus on these issues of sustainability. And I think it's... Um, yeah, it's really fascinating to come across those people because I don't think we've got enough of them, Ryan. Like I mm. feel we have people who get s- not stuck, but they kind of stay in their lane. So they stay in public service or they stay in academia or they stay in the business world. And, you know, increasingly we know that we've got complex problems. These, solving these complex problems require complex solutions and they require a whole team of interdisciplinary approaches where you need people who can talk the language of all those different sectors and she's definitely she's definitely someone who can do that. Yeah. And um she seemed really came across as very intelligent to me. She's got a master's in public policy, has done a PhD in planning. And it's just so exciting to me that these really intelligent and capable people are focusing on sustainability solutions rather than so many other things they could be doing to build their own wealth or to build their own enjoyment. Yeah, yeah. So she's just started um, a consultancy called Ringvale Circularity, which is a circular economy consultancy that um, is committed to supporting Australia to transition to a more sustainable, equitable model for economic growth. This is what they say on their website. We exist to question and rethink the current approaches and frameworks and to push forward to a future that supports us all. That question and rethink like yeah. sounds super exciting, but man, oh. I don't even know how you begin. No, well, she describes herself as a solutionary. Um, she cool. was the lead, uh, the sustainability leader at IKEA for three years, which has been a pretty big role. And um, as we'll hear, they've done a lot in sustainability more than we know. But um, I was just really excited about her putting her, she puts the onus on the consumer and we forget sometimes the power that we have that we can all be heroes just deciding where we spend our money and how because that's how everything operates and she talks a lot about the circular economy which is a really exciting concept and one I believe we'll hear more about and um, yeah it was just so great to sit down and talk to her like all of our guests. Awesome. Well, let's get on to it. Dr. Kate Ringvall. Local environment heroes Saving the trees and the bees And doing it daily All right. So, Kate, um, when I met you a couple of weeks ago, um, you introduced yourself by saying you'd just set up your own consulting business called Ringvale Ringvale? Ringvale. Ringvale Circularity. And the name you chose was not just because that happens to also be your name. <laughs> no. So no. there's a story behind your there surname. Is. I'd like yeah. you to tell us. Okay. So Ringval is Swedish and my ancestors come from a little island called Gotland, which is off the Swedish east coast, the south of Stock- Stockholm. And ring means circular and val is a wall, but it's not just any type of wall. It's a... Viking, Viking circular fortress wall. So we, my, my business partner, Huey and I thought, yeah, you, 
that's a golden opportunity to have a name that means something more than just a surname. And given our, our focus on the circular economy, uh, it seemed pertinent. So that's what we did. It's we incredibly it, relevant. Yeah. It's like you were always destined <laughs> yeah, to be doing right. this job. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Mm. Um, and your job title we like also, Chief Solutionary <laughs> yeah. Officer. Yeah. And look, I, I can't remember the lady's name who, who coined the term. Uh, she's a psychologist in America. Um, but if, you, if you're particularly interested, my, my title is Chief Solutionary Officer and solutionary or solutionaries or solutionists. <laughs> um, th- this lady in America t- coined that term and she, she basically said we need people more like solutionaries and solutionaries are people who are looking for solutions for some of the most wicked problems in the world and that their focus is people, planet and and everything. Mm. People, planet, animals and getting a win-win situation for, for everyone. And I really liked that term and, and that kind of ideal because, I mean, sustainability is enormous mm. but it doesn't really tell anyone re- really what we actually do in our daily life. Mm. And... And so I've taken on that solutionary kind of moniker because it really does describe what we do in sustainability. We're all about finding solutions that win for everyone instead of just some people. Yeah. I think it also makes it more active, right? It's, yeah, It's really exactly. activating what yeah. it is you're doing as opposed to, well, we'll have a look at some things. Exactly. It's like actually actively... We're going after. I'm not sitting around waiting for someone to decide something. I'm I'm going out and actively finding that solution. Yeah, I, I agree. So why? What's the challenge with finding these solutions? Why don't we have some solutions oh. already? <laughs> yeah, that's the sixty-four million dollar question. Look, I think a lot of it is because there's so many vested interests, and m- maybe even before then, my my thinking is more leaning towards that we've lost connection with nature as a as a humanity as a race we've lost connection with our inherent place in nature we are of nature we are an animal but we've forgotten that and we've you know and that's a centuries millennia maybe and we could debate about the origins of that but it, it certainly started around and slightly before the Industrial Revolution when humanities and hu- humans decided that they had dominion over nature and they, they were more superior. And it was that, that decision really has led to all sorts of unintended consequences because of that decision. And it, it's meant that we have had decided that we've had dominion over all of nature we will get rid of nature because it's messy and it's in the way and we'll build and develop and do all of these things without actually considering what are the consequences of that and when living through the consequences of that now we've got a climate that is warming we've got people that are in danger of losing land every day 
and that's happening right now, rain, all, you know, drought, all of those natural crises are happening right now. And Australia is probably experiencing them even more. Fire, you know, this time last mm. year, we just experienced a hailstorm, mm. a firestorm, and <clears throat> the, the kind of continuance of drought. Yeah. Those are all things that have happened because of the choices that we've made as a race. And that, yeah, that's kind of where we're sitting. We are, my job is to try and find the solutions to all of that and, and, to, and to help people to understand that all of those actions that we have have a consequence. And if you think about those questions and those decisions, you have to think long-term. It can't be four years. It has to be 100 years. What is the legacy of this decision and where will it take us? And we really haven't done that. Yeah, yeah. Both yeah. As, a, as a population, as a... Um, government as a parliament we haven't made those decisions very well mostly because we've we've missed great chunks of the information that we could have had we've just looked at it with a very thin prism could that be our economic system in the way we've structured things oh completely yeah i mean we've we've sort of gone with you know the planetary boundaries are are not finite we've we've forgotten that we've only got one planet and mm. we've forgotten that those environmental services that the planet gives us has a has a limit and we cannot live on that planet without some type of consequence eventually if we don't remember those things and we're living through that now so I want to go back to how you said um it's falling back in love with nature or understanding all those services that nature provides for us who do you start with there who do you have that conversation with like who are the biggest like biggest group in yeah, in a, australia for example great conversation um, a great question uh, i mean i think it's it's easy to go it, it's all the problem of of business or it's all the problem of governments they've made poor decisions or any of those things yes I think they haven't helped but really it's up it's actually up to the individual we each have a choice and we can choose not to consume products that aren't made in a way that that in, you know include planetary boundaries and, and and an understanding of that that's up up to us and I think as a as a consumer we have the opportunity to make those changes and that's happening slowly. But I think it's, it's, it's really too easy to say it's the fault of, you know, big business or corporates or oil and mining and gas and, and governments. It's, it's actually bigger than that. We're yeah. demanding those products and so business is supporting that and governments are meeting that need. Yeah. And do you think maybe we're demanding them because, again, we've – forgotten yeah we've totally totally forgotten so. where those products come from or where what you know what ha the processes that have gone into making those products oh, we've absolutely i think we've completely divorced um, ourselves from the process right and most most kids have no idea where even their food comes from yeah let alone where the products that they buy in the shop come from that there's there's 
a complete separation from that. Yeah. And, you know, that's part of the economic system that we've developed. We've, we've created this system that relies on us consuming. And at some point, there's an end for that. And we're approaching that really soon. We're at the point where those, those raw materials that we make all of those products out of are not going to be in existence if we continue doing what we're doing. Yeah. So is, is circular the answer? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can you explain just you know, before we get into circularity, yeah. just maybe explain to the audience what, what does Kate mean by circularity? Yeah. So circularity for us is, and I'm speaking about me and my business partner, Huya, for us circularity is about changing the way that we approach economics So it's actually not a conversation around sustainability. It's a conversation around economics. And it's creating markets that do not lose value. So at the moment, the linear economy economy model, which is the take, make and dump it in the ground model that we're currently kind of stuck in, that has value that is being lost all along the value chain. And the circular economy model says those that value that's being lost in, in, in that linear model, we can capture that and make sure that those materials or services or products or whatever it is can be retained in that cycle of production. So it's foremost a change in the way that we do our economics fundamentally. It's a, it's a totally different approach to business. And I guess the, the, the good news story about the circular economy, for me at least, is that it enables businesses to create new markets, new business models, new sources of income with value that they have currently n- not valued properly and it is being lost everywhere along the, the this sort of value creation cycle. And that... That means more jobs, that means people have meaningful work and maybe for the people that kind of don't know what they're doing, there's a whole vast range of opportunities of different things that they could be doing now. So surely everyone wants to take this up then. (laughs) I would think so, but (laughs) it's a slow burn, let's say. Look, I think the east coast of Australia is doing really well. There's lots of action happening. Europe has been doing this for decades, you know, and so we're the the kind of the the last to know about it. But, I mean, for them, the European Union has really been driving that action and it's, it's been good I think because it's meant that the big corporates that are sitting in Europe or are headquartered in Europe are obliged to do those things to be part of the European Union and a lot of that is being funneled and kind of channeled to Australia by default Mm. so you know IKEA for instance headquartered in Europe and they are obliged to follow everything that's going on in uh, as far as the regulations in in the European Union and, and so it means that their, their kind of credentials and their sustainability action is so far ahead mm. that – and they're doing that in Australia now too. Mm-hmm. And other companies are also doing exactly the same mm. because they have to. Yeah, great. Mm. Is it possible for us to re 
build this circular economy within the structures of the linear economy of which we're operating now? I believe it's possible, yeah. But it does, it does require, uh, a, a, I guess, a type of dismantling mm. of, of the structures that we currently have. Part of the problem with the linear economy model that's then been kind of with a layer of, of politics on top is that if things like fossil fuels have been heavily subsidised. Yeah. Behaviours that we don't actually want that, that lead to those unintended consequences are being subsidised in a way that means it's a lot harder for far more beneficial economic models to come along and, and do business. So, mm. you know, we, we do need a dismantling of, of those kinds of structures and that's hard. Yeah. but Not perhaps, impossible. Yeah. I mean, the European Union is, is proving that it's possible, yep. but they're not perfect either and they probably don't say that they're perfect there's there's definitely still work to do but but at the kind of the baseline we have to make the economic market uh, a, a level playing field and at the moment it's nowhere near that mm. but you think we can do it without anarchy uh, yeah i think it, yes you can but it does require that kind of political will that mm. europe europe has definitely already got that yep. we really need to mature as a as a population and our, and as a government yep. our politicians need to grow up yep. stop the infighting and actually do something that leaves a legacy that our grandchildren will be happy with because at the moment we're not leaving much of a legacy at all so at uh, an individual business scale when you're working with a business as a consultant mm. where do you start with them on trying to move them into a more circular approach yeah it really depends on where they're at as far as sustainability and, and everything starts really for us with sustainability i.e you know have they have they realized what their impact is as a business or as an organization have they got some concept of that if they haven't <laughs> it, it means look we can go in and change their business model to be more circular sure but they're always missing that sustainability piece, which is about having a sustainability policy and a strategy that drives them to whether it's net zero or you know zero carbon or whatever it is, they can make those commitments, but they can't do it without going circular as well. Yeah. The two are inextricably linked. And so a business might, I mean, we've had clients come to us with a, a type of manu different style of manufacturing and, and, and helping them to adjust what they do so that it becomes more circular. But the problem with only dealing with that aspect is if they're not also making sure that they're all only powered by renewable energy or making sure that, you know, their their waste, their loss of, of, of value is also stemmed further out in that business then they're they're losing m value mm. that material is being lost once it goes to landfill that's it but that maybe that's something that they could be also making products out of but then they've not made any assessment of that so it really requires a bigger assessment of just can i just change that manufacturing process let's say yeah it, it has to be a wider conversation so we would always try and look there's plenty of businesses that don't see the value in that 
the, the biggest issue with that is there's no resilience. Mm. They will be gone, yeah. gone in decades because they're not looking at this stuff because mm. eventually there will be tariffs on companies and businesses that aren't net zero or circular or one of the other. Yeah, mm. it's inevitable. Yeah. And so does the change then with these businesses, do you think it needs to be – or that, that shift in mindset – how important is it that the CEO or the COO, like the, the very top, get it, or is it more? It's someone dry sitting in the sustainability yeah. team that drives it. What's yeah, that's been my kind of ongoing conversation, I suppose. Look, it has to be both. It has to be top down and it has to be bottom up. You you really can't do one without the other. If it's from the top, that's great, but if no one else is engaged, this it's not, it's not going to go anywhere. Whereas if it's just from the bottom up and the, t- and the management aren't in- engaged, the same will happen. Mm. They'll get lots of action but it'll go nowhere and when that person moves their job or leaves, it will disappear. And, and I think there are businesses now, big corporates are now recognising that and are putting in chief sustainability officers and you know, sustainability teams because they, they recognise that it's important. And, you know, for, for businesses in that product and manufacturing area in particular, what they're realising is the, the raw materials that they make their products out of. You know, let's go back to the IKEA example. IKEA uses 1% of the world's cotton and 1% of the world's wood um, resources. So that's an enormous amount of materials that they use. And they recognised decades ago that unless they went, uh, went circular for the whole business model and for everything that they do, unless they went zero waste, 100% circular and engaged actively in that sustainability Mm. model, they would not have the raw materials for their products in 20, 30 years. That's the bare reality. And and you're saying they realised this decades ago. Absolutely. So you're... um, you were the sustainability leader for three years. Yep. For, was that IKEA Australia or IKEA Worldwide? Just Australia. IKEA Australia? <laughs> yeah, just, just, yeah. And you did some amazing things like led the circular economy, um, renewable energy, zero waste, mobility and accessibility topics, the integration and implementation of global sustainability goals, you liaised with governments and community, um, provided advice and support across all of IKEA Australia to develop local sustainability actions. Um, I just wanted to ask one or two questions. Mm. Firstly, my kids have made me ask this question. Right. Did you get free meatballs? Not free, but uh, subsidised. Subsidised. Yeah, <laughs> subsidised meals. Okay, and yeah. I'd like to know whether you preferred the vegetarian ones or the meat ones. <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. Um, it's tough. Look, They've got uh, tough yeah, questions that, that is really tough. Can I go with both? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because I do like both. Yeah, and the jam? The jam is so good. So good. Yeah, <laughs> so good. And yeah. my favourite jam is um, the cloud... Berries. They're the orange. They're like the orange. Oh, oh it's so good. Oh yeah. gosh. Okay. Yeah. Well, good to know. Um, <laughs> but how? Like, even you said that IKEA, you know, was at the forefront of this decades ago. So I guess, like, initially I was going to say, well, were you trying to turn around a big company? But you probably weren't so much turning around it around as I don't know, leading from within or providing some extra support and advice. Like, what? What were some lessons that you've learned from yeah, IKEA? Yeah, um, a lot. I mean, they were definitely already there, both from a strategic level and, and bottom up. And there was a lot of action. What I, what I 
discovered when I came first started in IKEA in Australia was there was a lot of action coming from the bottom. So people were doing things and there was, you know, whether it's making sure that everyone had a keep cup and a, and a water bottle for themselves. So there's, you know, they've kind of reduced all of that single-use plastic. You know, in the um, e- even waste was a massive issue in IKEA and, and a lot of that is their, their culture. So every store would have up to 10 different bins for, you know, separating the waste streams at the back of the store and the, the, the staff were all trained to understand and know which bin to put their items in and and that was totally cultural that that you know swedish culture but also ingvar kamprad who started ikea really came you know he started in the the depression i think the early kind of 40s i think and he started ikea with this idea that you could do more with less that was the whole kind of mentality and the vision and so that that is absolutely through all of the DNA of IKEA. So there wasn't a lot of uh, else that I needed to do from that perspective. What they really needed was a bit more structure and, and a kind of a, a bit more professional, you know, from a sustainability perspective. They needed just a little bit more professional um, structure so that they had that top-down approach as well because everyone was of course, in agreement that this was a really good thing, but it wasn't embedded yeah. really yeah. well yeah. and it really relied on people driving it rather than branches or areas, to, you know, um, directorates driving it, which is what it should be. And, yeah, so there was a lot – there was a big change towards making that more – more professional yeah and and that really helped in Australia because it meant that we could then th- there was a process and, a, and, a, and a, a structure for implementing things in Australia and one of the biggest <laughs> frustrations in Australia of course was IKEA was so far ahead in everything 80% of the waste is is diverted from landfill it's 20,000 solar panels on the eastern seaboard no other organisation was that far ahead and the local councils were also not that far ahead. Yeah. And so there was there was a, a limit to what we could do because we were still waiting for people to catch up. Yeah, we talk about that in, um, in the textile space where I know companies yeah. who are really wanting to do, really wanting to make a change and so they'll collect back um, used items of clothing mm. from people who they no longer want. So fine, well, we'll collect it, but they get to a point where they go, well, we've just got this warehouse now full of textiles because we don't have there's no the system in Australia process, to yeah, then for deal with it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you – so a lot of the – there's a lot of education and information involved in this stuff I'm getting from yep, you. totally. How does a big business tell that story in an authentic way um, when <sighs> I – I believe a lot of people are going there because it's convenient, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you get that story across authentically? Yeah, look, this has been the biggest – sticking point for me as a sustainability professional in a large corporate one of the biggest problems i see in messaging around sustainability is that big corporates have pr teams who who their whole focus is risk that that's their lens they see the world through a a risk lens and they communicate through a risk lens so it's very contained it's very sort of massaged the messaging 
it's very precise and and there's not a lot of give giveaway it, it's tight mm. and when you're messaging and communicating around sustainability you can't be any of that it's yeah. got to be authentic it's got to be real it's got to be in the voice of us of all of us it's not a pr voice yeah and my one big criticism for for ikea globally but particularly in australia is that they weren't able to get past that they just could not leave that pr lens and i think that's a that's a a disappointment because nobody knows about the 20,000 solar panels Mm. most people have no idea they don't know that 80% of the waste in every single store across the country is diverted to waste, to landfill, away from landfill, sorry. Mm. So that th- they don't know that. They don't, most people don't know that there's a take-back service now in, in, for furniture. So you can take your furniture, your IKEA furniture, back to the store and assuming it's in good, good condition, they'll buy that back. Most people have no idea that that's happening. And it's purely because their their messaging is just yeah. through that PR lens, and mm. and even the marketing lens. It's still very contained. It's very massaged. It's very, you know, risk averse. What's the risk of appearing sustainable? There is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> there is nothing. Yeah, and that that is that has been my biggest argument with the PR area is they're not getting that mm. that. If you're going to talk to consumers about what you're doing in sustainability, it has to be from people. It has to be through a real authentic voice. It can't be a very corporatized PR voice. It just doesn't work. Mm. Yeah. Challenging. Very challenging. But, you know, there's there's brands that have done it. Yeah. Patagonia is probably top of the, yeah, the I was list. Gonna say. Yeah, yeah and they've just, they to- they totally got it. Oh, amazing. Absolutely, com- just completely nailed it. But I heard someone said to me, who's 12 months ago, and said Patagonia is a niche, um, like it's, it's got its niche. So it's this niche brand and it has its niche little story. And if every brand, try, if every clothing band tried to do that, they wouldn't succeed like, and, pa- and Patagonia wouldn't survive. What, what do you think yeah. of that comment? Look, I think that's a point, but I'm thinking of, let's go back to Ikea. Mm. They have a very particular voice. Mm. It's quirky. It's kind of, it's very Swedish. It's very humble. If anyone had the, the right niche and the right voice, it's Ikea. Yeah. And they, there's some of the countries have managed to do it. I saw an, uh, an IKEA ad out of Canberra. Uh, sorry, not Canberra, Canada. It was it was amazing, and it was totally around um, reusing furniture and loving your furniture, and and that it was beautiful. Yeah, it was a little video, really short. It was basically kind of advertising their their take back service or mm. or sort of preempting that, and it was beautiful. It was you know kind of a, a furniture monster or, or something like that. So you can probably Google it, but it was great. But not every country seems to be able to do that. Yeah, and I yeah. don't know how much of a, a limb they went out on to do that But in, in um, Canada. But, yeah, here in Australia, <laughs> they just don't seem to be able to break that. Yeah, whatever it is. I don't, I don't know. 
I have I have one really great IKEA story. I have many IKEA stories. <laughs> we all fan. have. But my like on this topic, um, a few must be a few couple of months ago, a desk, an IKEA desk, one of my kids' desks broke. Um, and we couldn't work out how to fix it. And it's a particular part that only Ikea, like went to Bunnings, yeah, only Ikea yeah. would have this part. Um, rang Ikea within three days. I had that part shipped yep. from, yep. I think it was, it could have been China or somewhere. No, I think it was Italy actually. Yep. Came from the factory to my door, free of charge, yep. packed. Nobody knows that though. That's the thing. Like I have told everybody because yeah. I'm like, that's There's a, there's incredible. a spare parts library. That's At what they every said. every single store. All I had to do, in fact, yep. I couldn't even tell. They said, I don't know what desk it was. You're not selling it anymore. It kind of looks like this. They found it out and yep. said, yep, and here's the part. And I went, that's amazing. Desk's yep. still going And how strong. amazing would that be if everyone knew yeah. that? Yeah, mm. totally. Yeah. Yeah, they're missing out. They're yeah. totally missing out. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it. Yeah. Because to me, that is... That is circular in action. Yes, yes. It's, it's helping customers to make sure that their their product lasts longer. Yes, yeah. And wouldn't that be what we want? Yeah, yeah it is. Mm. I don't know. Well, we're getting close to our hero questions. Yeah. But I, I really wanted to ask this one, Julie, which was it's our last um, deep one. Is, yeah, sure. Is economic growth possible and desirable as we move to the circular model? I think... It's different economic growth. It has to be decoupled from our consumption of raw materials. It, it, it has to be de- decoupled from that. It has to be decoupled from carbon. And if we can do that, and we can, it is possible, then yes, we can do economic growth, but it won't be as fast because right now we're consuming at a rate that is... I think we're using 1.7 planets. Yeah. And last time I checked, we only had one. (laughs) I don't know where that 0.7 is going to come from because it's not going to come from here. And I don't want to see us doing that to Mars or Mm. any other planet that we're exploring. Yeah. So it is possible, but it means that we will have to change the way we do things. Yeah. And maybe change our values slightly, right? Totally like change it's not all our about values. Yeah. yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and 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 changing our expectations. What is comfort? What is home? You know, what what is those thoughts around when when is enough? Yeah, you know. Yeah. and if and you know, to, to me in in this journey of working out what I want to do, it became really clear that people consume more and poorly when they're they're out of balance on internally you know if if you're shopping to make yourself feel better then then you're going to consume at a rate that is far that's not sustainable yeah and i think some of the population that's kind of where we're sitting yeah they're consuming for the wrong reasons and so that that means a conversation with yourself yeah. Are you are you a conscious consumer? I definitely try to be. I mean, yeah. I, ha- I have to be. I've yeah. got to be. I've got to talk the. I've got to walk the walk and talk the talk. And look, it's not easy yeah. because there's a lot of misinformation out there. But there's definitely a conversation around. Do you actually need that item? Mm. Do you really need it? What are you going to do with it? And and does it is it really going to help you to live a better life? If it's not going to help you. Then why buy it? Mm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah. totally. 
So should we move on to our five hero questions? Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> do you want me to start? Please do. All right. I'm going to start with the first question. Congratulations, Kate. <laughs> You've just been elected the president of the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is the one change that you try to implement first? Oh, this is such a good question. <laughs> and I thought about it for a long time. Look, I think I would start with putting a price on carbon. Full stop, end of story. To me, that would create a market and a and a mechanism in the market to value carbon and give it the proper place in that. But also it gives recognition that there are externalities that have a price, they have a cost, they have a value, and we need to include those. Yeah, so that's where I would start. Where would I go next? Oh, probably deleting all of the subsidies that are currently on fossil fuels or carbon intensive activities so that's two mm. how, how many what's oh, my you list can, you can keep, keep going, going. <laughs> 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 look i mean for australia i think we absolutely need to have a common goal yeah one of the biggest one of the biggest frustrations especially if if you're in a business that works across the country and now you know in my consultancy we're working across the country but even you know working in IKEA it was deeply frustrating to have one thing one rule in one state and a totally different one in another state well, let alone councils. Let alone councils. Like if you go down exactly. to, we have a rule on this side of the street, but it's different on the but other it's different side. Different on the, the other side. I mean, that, like, that's crazy. that's absurd. Yeah, totally. And the the amount of effort and the duplication of resources and effort is mind boggling. Yeah. And it also makes it much more complex to do business or or just live your life in those kinds of environments. If there's on this side of the road, it's something else, but on this side of the road, what? Yeah. How is that efficient? That's not efficient. That makes no sense whatsoever. And and if we go and if we examine why why is that like that, it's mostly because individuals in those places have decided that they think their place is different and that they want to hold on to that. And there's nothing wrong with being different. No problem at all. But if that means that we're duplicating effort and resources just because we want to, I don't know, value that difference, we really have to question that. I, I think it's possible to be have difference and be different but share resources and share effort, uh, certainly across local governments. And there's, you know, the whole political kind of chaos around amalgamations and all of that sort of thing. But the real problem with that is... It's not recognising that people aren't seeing the duplications. And, and if, you're, if you're having to experience that, it's so frustrating. Yeah. And at a national level, it's, level, it's, it's just mind-boggling. The fact that we have a container deposit scheme different in every single state is... It's stupid. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> stupid. And we know why it's happened. There was no federal leadership on that. Why not? I... I don't know. So I don't want to say I'd, I'd get rid of federation, but it needs tweaking. Yeah. It mm. needs serious tweaking. And, and particularly the way that we elect our governments, that also needs tweaking. 
the fact that one person or one person in a different area has a, a bigger weighted vote. Hello? Mm. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's that's no. Lucky we installed you as the president of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> All right, well, let's look into the future a little bit. It's mm. 2030. Yep. Describe the world you see around you. <sighs> Where I would like us to be. I would like us to be in a place where waste is not a concept that we understand or, or have anymore. It's just not even co- – it's not even a name. It's not even a word That's that so we cool. remember. Mm. You know, our grandchildren don't have any concept of what waste is. Yeah. Yeah. Because we've gone to a place where we've valued every single material that we have and all the products and – even if it's time or energy lost, we valued all of those things. Because when we talk about value in a, in, a, in a system, it's not just materials, it's energy is leaking as well. Yeah. We have an energy system that is deeply inefficient, deeply and fundamentally inefficient. But we've – and we, we really have done very little to change that because, you know, it's, it's a big wicked problem. But a lot of that is around because in the 19th century, someone decided that having a centralised grid was a really good idea. Maybe it was back then, but now that is not the case. It is no longer that. Mm. And so we're kind of trying to adapt a 19th century energy grid for 21st and 22nd century business. Something that needs to give. Mm. Yeah, totally. Um, who are your environmental heroes? Oh, there's, there's a few. Yeah. Uh, our friend David, obviously, is number one. Yeah. Um, uh, Jean, I, I'm not even going to pronounce it very well, but Jean Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, Jacques Cousteau. Cousteau. My French is not very good. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, look, uh, the and again, he's also got a French name and I'm not going to try and pronounce it but the guy who started or one of the guys that started um patagonia ah mm. yes Yvonne. yeah a bush boucher no <sighs> it's very close Some, yeah. something yeah. something yeah. like yeah. that total legend oh amazing yeah. to- and I've, his book know. everyone needs to read the yeah, book yeah his book mm. is amazing yeah. it let my let people, my go people surfing. Yeah. surf yeah. <laughs> 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 i mean even just the title Ryan, yeah, yeah. A, ryan's a big yeah. surfer so that <laughs> yeah, is yeah. Rally. In Canberra. <laughs> Not usually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so definitely, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Him. And, and probably um, my first one was Rachel Carson. Yes, yes. The writer of The Silent Spring, yeah. 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 Something Scary. we should revisit. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and then Greta. Oh. What, a, what a legend. Yeah. Yeah, she gives me hope about the future. Yeah, that there's all these young little activists coming up behind us. That's really good. That means I don't feel like I'm in this fight alone, which is really important because yeah. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. But it's yeah. you do forget that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. What is your hot tip for our listeners to be more environmentally friendly in a way? Oh, that's a, another great question. Look, I think going back to my point about us being being you know, consumers, we are, that's power. Yeah, yeah. Our dollar has power. And where we choose to spend that dollar has power. We can decide not to buy that whatever it is because it's not 
sustainable in whatever way, that's up to us. And that's certainly what I try to do every day. It's not easy to do it in every aspect of your life. And I think, you know, we also have to be realistic. We are just human. We are fallible. And we only have so much time. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all pretty busy. And, you know, working mother, I know what that's like. But I think I my goal is always to try and do the best that I can in that area and, and shop as consciously as I can. And that's really all you can do. Yeah. So is there, our last question is, is there a mantra or a key message that you live by? And I kind of think it's, it's that, right? It's pretty much that. Yeah, be really thoughtful about where your dollar goes. Yeah. Because it has a message. Mm. Yeah. So that's getting back to nature. <laughs> getting back to nature and yeah. knowing what you're spending your money on yeah. and why you're spending it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Kate. Thank you Thank so you. much for joining us. Yeah, Thanks that's been great. Me. It's been a really another rich conversation full yeah. of interesting tips and tricks from an expert, a local Canberra hero. Yep. Oh, local thanks. environment <laughs> heroes saving the trees and the bees and doing it daily.